Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thank you for being here. If you're part of the King's Cross family, um, it's really good to see you again. And if, if we're new to you, we're super excited that you're here. And we want you to know that we take that, that statement of faith seriously, and you're welcome. So let's start with prayer. Father, I pray that this mouth, the audience's ears, and our hearts will be fully tuned to you today and always. Amen. So I'd like to think we have a pretty mature church here. Um, but I, I do feel like I need to point out that the fruit on the back table is not for throwing. It needs to stay out of the auditorium, at least until I get off the stage. So that's a whole other issue right there. But I loved Chris's discussion about lament. I loved what Alyssa had to say. Um, and what I want to ask you is, what comes to your mind when you think of Palm Sunday? There's probably some people in here who don't know what Palm Sunday is. That's great. I'm glad you're here. And hopefully when you leave, you won't be able to say that anymore. But most of us, we probably have visions of kids at church running around, maybe waving some palm branches, laughing, having fun. And at least for me, I typically imagine Jesus riding on a donkey, smiling, waving at the adoring crowds, maybe like this. Does that look familiar to anybody? I mean, that's basically right out of Kid Coloring Book 101 for, for Palm Sunday. And so, but as Courtney just read, that's not what the text says. It does say that Jesus rides a donkey. It says that the crowd cheers and shouts, but it also points out that in that crowd, there's one person who's not celebrating, and no one seems to notice. 
In fact, that person's not smiling, he's weeping. And we don't have to wonder why, because Jesus tells us himself in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And so also I want to draw your attention that he says the things. Things is plural, which, which means this is a multifaceted message and peace looks different to different people. So first you're going to have to humor me. Imagine, if you will, your home and it's movie night, which you love. You pop some popcorn, you dim the lights, maybe you get out a comfy blanket, share it with a friend or a family member. And the movie selection is a classic Hollywood movie, Shrek. Trust me, Shrek is going to be a classic. And as you enjoy the movie, at one point you hear the wit and wisdom of Donkey and Shrek going back and forth when Donkey is trying to help Shrek get his kingdom back from the evil King Farquaad. Donkey tells Shrek, you know, you need to do some ogre stuff, Shrek, like attack the fortress and get the king and grind his bones and make bread. But Shrek disagrees. He says, there's a lot, and I wish I could do a Shrek accent, but I can't. He says, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Ogres are like onions. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. You get it. We both have layers. What Shrek is saying is that things are not always what they seem. So I'm not trying to compare Shrek and Jesus' message, but I do mean to explain that Jesus' tears help us to see a bigger and broader meaning. His tears are a layer, much like an onion, and critical in understanding the history from that day, but also what God has for us this very day. Those tears should be noticed and not wasted. So my, my hope for us today is once we see those tears, once we can peel that layer off the onion, we'll never not be able to see those tears. And we should also know that it's, it's not just Jesus that has layers. It's all of Scripture. And before we can really look at Jesus' tears, let's try and understand what's happening all around him. And so as part of this story's, as part of this story for the layers, Today is really about context, context, context. To get there, we need to identify and try to understand each of the stakeholders in this story. Um, there's four of them, in fact. And each of them have a critical and even a historical aspect that makes this story really compelling. So, like, if you're a history nerd, this is for you. If you're not a history nerd, I'm sorry, I'll try and have an intermission. Maybe we'll do some jumping jacks in the middle. But this is, this is history nerd stuff, and this is what gets me excited. Um, so the four stakeholders here are, one, the crowd. We're going to talk about them and try to understand their mindset. Two, the Romans. We're going to talk about the Romans and what they were thinking. Three, the religious leaders play a significant part in here. And fourth, and most importantly, is Jesus. And it helps us to know that each group, what each group was thinking. And since the most important person's perspective is Jesus, we're going to start with him, and then we're going to come around and we're going to end with him. So as has been announced, today is Palm Sunday. It's the start of Holy Week, which ends next Sunday with Easter. But as Jesus entered the city, which is what Courtney read to us, these events haven't happened yet. So nobody knew what a Holy Week was. Nobody knew what an Easter was. 
Jesus, as an observant Jew, is simply obeying Torah or Torah, which are the Jewish holy books, and for us, the first five books of our Bible. So Exodus 12, verses 1 through 3, is what Jesus and the observant Jews are doing. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. See right there, it says, tell all the congregation of Israel that, skip ahead a little bit, every man shall take a lamb. So today, today, this very day for observant Jews is the tenth day of the first month. And Jewish families then would have chosen a lamb to examine and prepare for sacrifice. To celebrate, Jews from all over the known world would have responded to Jerusalem. And according to historians in Jesus' day, that would have been about 200,000 people all converging on an ancient city. They went to Jerusalem because it was the capital city and it was also the location of their temple, which in their beliefs was where God himself was said to live. The city was also better known as Jerusalem Shalom. Which brings me to my first point. Jesus is shalom. Now, shalom is a very important word that we have a tendency to gloss over because it's much different than peace, which is often how it's translated. Peace to us means the absence of violence, but shalom, that's not what it means. Shalom means completeness, it means harmony, and it means wholeness. Shalom exists when all relationships in creation are interacting and flourishing. When, like where heaven and earth meet. Think of maybe the Garden of Eden. They had shalom in the Garden of Eden until sin came in. Or to the Jews, like where God resided in the temple. So families in that day were expected to bring or purchase a lamb. Jewish historians tell us that most of the, cheap, most of the sheep purchased would have been raised in Bethlehem and then herded along largely the same route that Jesus and his followers were using that day for Passover. So imagine the lambs and Jesus, both born in Bethlehem, follow the same route into Jerusalem, Shalom, where heaven and earth meet. Are you starting to see maybe some of the layers that we're alluding to? And I, I mentioned that sheep were for sacrifice, and some families were able to bring their own sheep, but many either did not or could not. And so the shepherds would have raised them to sell to families in need and would bring them into Jerusalem on the east side of the city called the Sheep Gate. And after four days of examining those sheep, they would find the ones that were without defect, the perfect ones, and then sacrifice them as atonement for sins. So let me try and draw another layer here and make another connection. On the same day that the families would have received their best and most perfect lamb, today, Palm Sunday, Jesus, the Lamb of God, entered the city as well. And on the same day the sheep were found to be without defect, and would have been sacrificed, um, Jesus, too, gave himself up for sacrifice on what we call Good Friday in just a few short days. Ray, if you could put the map up for me. <clears throat> Thank you. Prophecy tells us that Jesus and his group entered through the East Gate. And as Courtney read, Luke confirms this for us when Luke men mentions the path. And he does this by mentioning Bethphage, Bethany, and then the Mount of Olives as the path that Jesus and his group took. So here on the map, you can see the gate, the Golden Gate, which is on the, oh, it's a little blurry. So 
it's hard to see, but it's on the right side of the city there. And many people think that's the gate that Jesus came in. But nobody really knows for certain. And with all the layers so far we've talked about with the lambs and Jesus and how they intersect, wouldn't it be just like Jesus to enter through the gate just around the corner, but still on the east side of the city, the one called the Sheep Gate? And I'm sorry that this is blurry, but the Sheep Gate is literally on the map this far, if that helps, right around the corner. So that's Jesus' reason for going to Jerusalem. He's going as an observant Jew to celebrate Passover. But that's not necessarily why all of the crowd is there. So let, let's talk about what's going on with them. So this is not rhetorical. I actually would love some answers. But what's Passover a celebration of? Anybody? Awesome. Thank you, Serena. Gold star. If you couldn't hear what Serena said, Passover is a celebration of freedom from slavery. The same book um, that I read out of a minute ago, Exodus, that tells Jesus and the crowd to prepare a lamb for sacrifice, is also the book that tells of the prophet Moses and how God used him to set the Israelites free from Egypt. Now, we, of course, don't celebrate Passover because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we celebrate Easter. And since we know the end of the story that Jesus is coming back for us, Easter kind of has a, yay, we're going to heaven type of vibe to it, right? But that's not the vibe Passover had. Passover had or has a remember when we were slaves and God delivered us. So in Jerusalem, it's Passover season. And faithful Jews are coming from all over the countryside to celebrate being freed from Egypt. But there's a problem. They're not actually free. The Romans are now oppressing them, and the Jews hate the Romans much like they hated the Egyptians. They hate them so much that there's group like, groups like the Zealots whose mission was to disrupt and kill as many Roman soldiers as possible. And if you guys remember, with the disciples, like the biggest contrast is typically Matthew the tax collector, who would have been considered an absolute sellout to his people, and Simon the Zealot, who actually had a license to kill people like Matthew, and yet Jesus made them disciples. <clears throat> so to the crowds, the zealots, I'm sorry, yeah, to the crowd, the zealots were freedom fighters, but to Rome, they were terrorists. And Passover then was the time when would-be revolutionaries and false messiahs would show up and try to encourage the crowds to revolt against the Romans. And since God had sent them Moses to lead them out of oppression from Egypt, the people were on the lookout for a new Moses to get them out from under the Romans. While Passover is supposed to be about thanks and atonement for sins, but what the crowd wants now, what they really want, is liberation from Rome. And because of prophecy, they know that Jesus is bringing liberation, but it's liberation from bondage of sin and death and violence. And so as he nears the city, Jesus sees the crowd's response, and he weeps. And weeping is a layer that the crowd can't or won't understand. So to add a few more layers, let's look at the book of John, the Gospel of John, verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, I'm sure everyone here knows that verse 15 there is right out of Zechariah, right? So Zechariah 9.9 was written about 500 years before Jesus' birth. And Zechariah was a prophet or an oracle at a time when many of God's people viewed faithful obedience as useless. These were dark, desperate times. And Zechariah reminded the people that God was still present. And when the time is right, a king from the line of David would come for them riding a donkey. So let's talk about the donkey for a minute. In scripture, a donkey is a sign of humility and regal authority. King David and King Solomon, good kings that brought peace, both rode donkeys as they assumed their thrones. In contrast to the donkey is the horse. And a horse is a sign of human strength, pride, and war. So the donkey does three things here that the crowd should have seen. One, it confirms prophecy. And the crowd saw it. We can tell by what they said. They said, Hosanna. Two, the donkey confirms that Jesus is a king. And they were able to see that as well because scripture tells us they threw their cloaks in front of the donkey's path and in front of Jesus' path. But three, the donkey also announces that this king, this king is coming in peace. And the crowd whiffed. They completely missed that this king came in peace. And how do we know they missed that? Well, these same people who throw him a parade and hail him as a king will be given a chance to let him out of Roman custody in just a few short days. But instead, they look at him and they point their fingers and they yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus has many names in scripture. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Prince of Peace. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But in Matthew 9.15, he refers to himself as the bridegroom and names us, the church, as the bride. I ask you, as a bride, did you sit there, I'm sorry, stand there and ignore your bridegroom standing at the altar wailing tears of lament? What if I, or, or what if Pastor Chris came up here and began to sob? I mean, really sob uncontrollably, and nobody asked why or gave comfort. Do you think that might be insight into the kind of people that we're talking about? Jesus' lament should have ended the party, but it did not. And Ray, would you throw that map up there again for me? Thank you, sir. All right, we've talked about what brings Jesus to Jerusalem. We've talked about the crowd and what they think is happening, but what's up with these Romans? And this is the part of the story that I find most people don't know and kind of gets me excited to expose. So we talked about a parade coming in the East Gate, right? That's Jesus and his followers. But we haven't talked about the parade that was coming in the other side of the city at the same time through the gate on the west side, the main gate. That parade is being led by Pontius Pilate on a horse. So do you see the symbolism there? Jesus on the east gate and his group, Pontius Pilate and his group on the west gate. So Pilate is the governor of the area, and he leads his fighting men to the Antonia Fortress. And so that blurb on the right side with the striations around it, I don't know what you call that red stuff there. The four squares just above it, that's the Antonia Fortress, and the red denotes the temple. 
So Jesus and his group go into the temple and Pilate and his group go into the Antonia Fortress at roughly the same time. The Romans built the Antonia Fortress so they could keep an eye on the Jews. So them going there is not an accident. This is completely intentional. And while Jesus' parade is small and enters through the narrow gate, Pilate's parade is massive and comes through the main gate, the wide gate, if you will. It's a massive show of force with soldiers on horseback, even more soldiers on foot. Imagine drums beating, weapons at the ready, shields held up, helmets on, glistening in the sun, marching to the beat of the drum. They would have kicked up a huge dust cloud. Most roads weren't paved back then. This is the type of thing a blind man would have been able to see, and yet we seem to have missed it. If it helps, I know the nerd is strong in this church, and I'm so proud of you for that. Think of Attack of the Clones, when all of a sudden the camera zooms out, and there's hundreds, maybe thousands of stormtroopers, and you realize that they're not there for good. Or in recent times, Think of what we just saw in the news a couple of weeks back or a month back where there was a caravan of dozens and dozens and dozens of Russian tanks going into Ukraine. Those things are done intentionally. This is what you call raw intimidation. You see, Rome had a saying back then. It was called, their saying was Pax Romana. And they would shout that out and they would yell it proudly. And Pax Romana means Roman peace. And while it's true that the Romans spread peace throughout the known world, it's also true that the way they did it was through fear and violence. You were either with us or we would get rid of you. So Pilate does all of this because as a military man and a student, the Passover of 4 BC would have still been fresh in his mind. And in 4 BC, just outside of Jerusalem, a group of frustrated Jews stoned to death a company of Roman soldiers. And in response, Rome's army rushed in, destroyed two cities, and crushed the uprising, killing 3,000 men, women, and children. The Romans then continued marching, and they went into Jerusalem, the holy city. They went into Jerusalem, and they made peace with everybody. And after everything was calmed down, they then did an investigation. They rounded up any Jew they suspected of being part of the rebellion. Suspected. They didn't prove it. They suspected them. And they crucified them by hanging them on crosses the same way they did Jesus. And in that event, 2,000 people were crucified. And the more Jesus' followers call him Lord and Son of God, the angrier Rome and Pilate get. You see, in Pilate's mind, Caesar, which basically means king, is the Son of God. The late Emperor Augustus ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD, and he was said to have been fathered by the God Apollo. Inscriptions referred to him as son of God, Lord, and even Savior. And after his, his death, legend had it that he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place amongst the gods in the clouds. And the Caesar during Jesus' lifetime was Caesar Tiberius. He had divine titles as well and demanded that people address him and worshiped him as a god. So because of all this, the Romans are fearing revolt. And Jesus sees both sides, the crowd side and the Roman side, and he recognizes how hard their hearts are, and he weeps. Because again, Jesus wants the things, plural, of peace. And the people in the crowd, Jesus' crowd, the, one that, the ones that claim to know him, the one that, that he says, come and be with me, 
they keep taunting the Romans and they wave palm fronds. So this is the time for the intermission, but I forgot my palm fronds. So this is, I was going to have a few people stand up and wave these palm fronds because they make a specific sound that's important to this. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because the first thing we need to know is that when Jesus comes, he comes for everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Jesus is coming for everyone, and palm fronds are a direct demonstration that his followers are not. History time, again. So in the year 167 BC, the Seleucid Empire controlled Jerusalem, and their king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, was a really, really bad king. He was so bad that he took over the Jewish temple, that one that was up on the board a little bit ago, and he cast out the high priests. He outlawed Torah. He outlawed circumcision. He even turned the Holy of Holies into a place to worship the god Apollo. And then he brought pigs into the temple, which if you don't know is about one of the worst things you can do to a Jewish holy site. He brought pigs into the temple, slaughtered them on their altar, and sprinkled pig blood throughout the whole place. And in response, a tribe of Jewish nationalists led by Judas Judas Maccabeus, whose nickname was the Hammer, by the way, revolt and attack Epiphanes and his men. And the fighting extends all the way through the fall and into winter, through the harvest season and right through one of their Torah-directed holidays known as the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkoth. And during Sukkoth, palm branches are waved vigorously to duplicate the sound of rain. So imagine I shook them and you heard rain. Because remember, Sukkoth is a holiday about harvest season. And then when the Maccabees retook the temple, their followers grabbed palm fronds because it was part of the festival and in and around the temple shook them, infuriating the new, the recently conquered people. Palm fronds then became a symbol of Israel's quest for independence, much the same way maybe a raised fist for communism sends a message or the Confederate flag in the way it says the South will rise again are both signs of revolt and rebellion. The Maccabees took it so far they even minted money. They minted coins with palm trees on them, and the inscription on the coin said for the redemption of Zion as, a national, as nationalistic pride. So you can see why palm branches are not as innocent as we necessarily think. They became symbols of revolt and revolution that put fear into Rome's heart, and they had to have a strong response. And I didn't mention Hosanna yet, but Hosanna is actually pronounced Hoshanah. Hoshanah is an Aramaic word that means save us now. Hoshanah, back when the Maccabees took the temple back, became a rally cry that meant save us from the enemy. So oftentimes innocent looking things, innocent sounding things can anger somebody and fire a crowd up into a frenzy. One of Jesus's reoccurring themes in the gospel is that we don't win peace by force or taking it away from somebody else. That makes sense? We should see that over and over again. And so these are some of the reasons that Jesus weeps. Jesus' followers follow the way of the cross. Slide number three. So the Maccabees, like the crowd wanted from Jesus, 
followed the way of the hammer, but we know because of history their victory was short-lived. When you follow the way of the cross or the way of the lamb, as Jesus is also known, our victory is eternal, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. But there's still more. Luke 18, verses 31 through 33. And taking the 12, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. His apostles didn't understand most of what Jesus was saying then. But let's not miss that this is a flashback to the week before Passover. So Jesus knew as he was heading towards Jerusalem, he knew and he told others what was about to happen to him. Jesus was able to see his capture and his torture and his death, and yet he went anyway. And the reason he went is because Jesus tells us over and over in Scripture that he's obedient to the Father and he always does the Father's bidding. And so we've covered the Romans, we've covered the crowd, we've touched on Jesus. Let's talk about the Pharisees very quickly. Courtney read this to us at the beginning, Luke 19, verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In another text, it actually says, Shut them up. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So when the Pharisees say, shut them up, the Pharisees are fearful because the Romans told the Pharisees that they could maintain some power as long as everything went through them. And the Pharisees jealously guarded their power at the expense of their own people. In a way, the Pharisees were lesser partners with the Romans and the crowd saw them as sellouts. So in this, the Jewish mob, the crowd, they were wrong in why Jesus was coming. The Romans were wrong in how they were going to respond, and the Pharisees were wrong. But the thing they have in common, the reason they were all wrong is because they worshiped the same thing. What they worshiped was power. And power will get us into trouble every time. And just as we saw a little bit ago in Luke 18, when Jesus told his disciples he was headed into harm's way, Jesus can also see it in Luke 19, where he says the very stones would cry out, which, just like our earlier prophet Zechariah, this is clearly from Habakkuk. This is verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, which says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. And we don't have time to get fully into Habakkuk, but you should know this is a prophetic oracle against Jerusalem from Yahweh, God himself. And in that prophecy, Yahweh says, Israel is a city built on blood and injustice, and the rocks will cry out against them because of the blood they have shed. So all I can say to that is, whoa. People think that Jesus was saying the people needed to yell out because they'd been oppressed for so long, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's actually saying is, you're not who you think you are because your hearts are hard. The city of peace is actually the city of blood. The crowds have rejected my message of shalom and are embracing the world's message of violence. And in yet another layer, <clears throat> Jesus sees it all. He sees the total destruction of Jerusalem 
in the future. As in Luke 19, 43 through 44, he tells us, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this right here, this is prophet Jesus. Jesus is known as the only perfect person ever. And in scripture, he's known as a prophet, a priest, and a king because he can fulfill all those three roles where nobody else can. So what he's telling us is what happens about 40 years in the future in AD 70 when the Romans get frustrated with these pesky Christians and they make Christianity illegal. And when they do that, they destroy the entire city, knocking every wall down, knocking every building down, including the temple, and then they hunt and kill down every Christian they can find. And then at the end there, what does Jesus mean by, because you did not know the time of your visitation? Well, he's talking about himself. He's talking about right then and right there. He, God, is standing right in front of them. And yet he knows they're not going to change because their hearts are so hard. Jesus is literally weeping because he has a broken heart. So to rehash that real quickly, to the, gra- to the crowd, Jesus' heart says, you say you are mine, but you're committed to bloodshed. You want me. You want me to be on the horse and come in might and violence and ugliness. And you want my parade to look like that parade, but it doesn't and you don't get it. And to the Romans, Jesus' heart says, violence is not my way. It's never my way. Only love and humility can conquer in a way that stays conquered forever. And to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, Jesus' heart says, you of all people, you recite my father's words and you hold others accountable to rules upon top of rules, but your hearts are not right and you don't recognize God when he's standing right in front of you. Is it any wonder as Jesus comes into the city, his heart is breaking? And maybe we don't easily see it this way because we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. I mean, for us, we're already talking about Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and we should. Those are good and beautiful things. Because for us, it ends with Jesus on the cross, and then the cross is made complete three days later by his resurrection. But let's not forget that this wasn't easy. So another layer is that Jesus, even Jesus, sweated blood and asked the Father, is there any other way? Because Jesus wanted their hearts, our hearts, to be for him. But those people loved power more than they loved Jesus. And because of the Father's great love, and Jesus' great love, he was obedient to the Father, and there was no other way. Jesus then is trying to tell us when he wept before he entered the city, you don't bring peace through violence like the Romans did. You don't bring peace by trying to vanquish your foes like the crowd did. We bring peace by trusting in God and knowing he has a good plan for us. Good thing none of us has ever believed we were in control, right? That's not a problem for us in the church. Or maybe, good thing, it's none of us have ever pushed our will onto somebody else because we wouldn't do that here. Or maybe it's a good thing that if we just had a little bit more power, maybe our problems would be solved, right? 
If I could just accomplish this, then I would have happiness. Then I would have peace. Then shalom would be with me. And so, much like the crowd, I mean, I, I can't get into your minds, but I know, I know mine and I know my heart. And, and like, like the crowd, I need to admit to you that I have in fact cheered in my heart that the other side, that they would fail. And much like the Romans, um, I've cheered that I would be full of power and might and strength in face of adversity. And like the religious leaders, I thought I knew what was best for others sometimes. And I can tell you up here on this stage, most of you know me, I need to do a better job of doing the Father's bidding and loving his people, all of them, and trusting him. So in all of this, even if I had the courage to be on the east side of the city with Jesus, I'm not convinced I personally would have recognized his tears. I'd like to think I'd know better, but I don't know. I can't help but think I would have been right in the thick of that crowd waving a palm branch and shouting Hosanna, knowing I was taunting the people I didn't like. I know one thing, and I definitely don't want to be a part of a crowd that on Friday yells, crucify him. But without paying attention to all those layers we discussed, I might be in that crowd. And for that, I say, Lord, forgive me. And it's strange what becomes a symbol, but as we'll talk about next week, with Chris's message, the cross and the resurrection bring redemption for everything. It brings redemption for our palm branches. It brings redemption for Hoshinah. But most importantly, it brings redemption for hearts that occasionally get swept up by the wrong crowd. Because just a few days later, that tomb's going to be empty and Jesus' arms, scarred and bloody, are wide open, looking to embrace us. And so as I finish, I have one amazing plot twist that, candidly, I took this from somebody else, but it was just too good to pass up. The following Friday, what we're looking forward to is Good Friday, Pontius Pilate actually became the first evangelist. You see, against the Pharisees' wishes, Pilate placed a sign at the top of the cross and above the crucified Jesus' head. In three languages, Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, which were the world's main languages, the sign simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So somebody like Jesus, only Jesus, could have gotten his enemy to announce his belief that Jesus was innocent. Pilate literally washed his hands in front of the crowd and acknowledged that Jesus was being treated unfairly. So Pilate himself, Jesus' enemy, was frustrated at what had happened. The crowd, the Pharisees, even Rome treated him poorly. But by demanding, by forcing that sign to be tacked above Jesus' head, Pilate announced Jesus' kingdom to the entire world, and we're still looking at images of it today. So that's the story of Palm Sunday. And do you know that's only one day out of seven? So when Alyssa says, open up that 
guide that the church worked so hard and created, please open it up. Read it. There's some really beautiful stuff in there because as I said earlier, we know how this story ends. So it's easy for us to gloss over Jesus is weeping. But let's not do that ever again. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.